Thank you so much for having me and giving me the opportunity to share a psalm with you. One of my favorites and one that I trust will be a blessing to you. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer for a moment and let's ask the Lord to really drive his word deeply into our hearts this morning. Our Father, we come to you this morning thanking you so much that you did not leave us to guess. You did not leave us to hope and beg and plead that we would know the way to know you. But you gave us a Bible. You gave us the Word of God. And cover to cover, it is your inerrant, inspired, holy Word. And it tells us all that we must know of you. It certainly reveals all that we must understand about ourselves. And how a holy God can be united to unholy man without besmirching your holiness. And to draw us to yourself, you have made us holy through Christ. We thank you this morning. We ask you, Lord, to be a blessing to every person here through the preached word. I pray, Lord, for those, and I know they're here, for those who are in deep need of encouragement right now, in deep need of the reminder and the knowledge that God is all-powerful and that when we wait on you, that is perhaps the best thing we can ever do in this life. We praise you and thank you and ask you, Lord, to bless your servant. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Have you heard the phrase, timing is everything? I, I think that's pretty true. It's a common phrase, and we have a lot to say to the Lord about timing as well. We speak to him about timing all the time. When we pray, our sense of timing generally defaults to the sooner the better, right? Nobody here has ever prayed, Lord, I'm asking for help with this crisis, but I'd really prefer you wait a few years. I want you to wait till the last possible minute to answer this prayer. We don't do that. We say we'd like a buffer here, Lord, right? I've got this bill to pay, and I don't want the money one minute before it's due. I'd like to have it a couple months before it's due. That would be, that would be great. Well, timing is everything, and today I want to Look to King David in Psalm 62 and talk about how to relax in God's timing. How to relax in God's timing in Psalm 62. Now, just a very, very brief background. King David is in some sort of dangerous situation. We don't know exactly what it is. Uh, commentators tend to default to his, the rebellion of his son Absalom. That tends to be kind of what we default to. That would fit all of the various crises that we see in this psalm. In either case, though, we have several factors happening. We have David in a dangerous situation. We have him facing the fact that people he's close to have betrayed him. And we have the fact that he is in a situation that he would prefer not to be in. And he's having to wait now, just a, just a quick structural note here. There is a very natural division in Psalm 62, the Selah division here. Verses 1 through 4 speak of waiting quietly for the Lord in the power of His strength and, the, and His security. Verses 5 through 8 tell us of, again, waiting quietly for the Lord because of His protection, because He's, he's a protecting God. And then the last four verses, verses 9 through 12, speak of making certain to trust in the Lord because life is brief and we're feeble and we have no choice other than to trust in him. But for our purposes this morning, I'd like to think of this psalm in terms of the listener. Who is hearing this and who is reading this? 
To whom is David directing his song, his speech? Because every time he directs his speech, it's to somebody. And there's various groups uh, that he's directing the speech to. And in each grouping that he's directing his speech or his song to, there's a basic message. There's a basic theme. So it might be helpful to picture David on a stage, kind of like this one, and he's speaking about his dangerous situation. Upward, we have God who is in sovereign control. And later on in the psalm, David will speak to God. Over to the right, my right, for example, to this side, we would say those are his strong and powerful and wealthy enemies. No offense over here. I'm just using you as a prop for the moment. But over here are the strong and powerful enemies that are coming against David. Over here on the other side are the people of Israel. You are the elect ones. You are the good ones. We won't talk about them over here for the moment. These are his people that he's going to speak to. And then outward is everyone, the audience, the, the reader. And that's, that's really all of us this morning. And so David is going to speak to all of these players in this drama. He's going to speak to God. He's going to speak to his enemies. He's going to speak to his people, Israel. And he's going to speak to all of us. The overall message of Psalm 62 basically is don't let appearances deceive you. That even though you may feel on the verge of defeat, only God has the full true picture. He's strong. He's mighty. So if you remember nothing else, remember this. Relax in God's timing. And it's my hope this morning to prove to you that that's the best position we can take. So first, David speaks, as it were, to us, to all of us, to the audience, watching how he handles the crisis on the stage of his life. And the basic message and we'll do a basic message each time he changes audiences. The basic message to us is we can wait restfully in a safe place. We can wait restfully in a safe place. And we'll work our way through the psalm and let it unfold as we go. Verse 1 of Psalm 62. To the choir master, according to Jeduthun, a psalm of David. For God alone my soul waits in silence. From him comes my salvation. Now, the English translation supplies the verb waits because it's very much implied here, but it's not there in the Hebrew text. The, the Hebrew text basically says, my soul is silent. That's it. There's a confidence. There's a trusting. There's a tranquility. There's a halcyon sort of attitude to David's waiting. The same word for silence is used only one other time in the Old Testament, and it's translated rest or repose. It's, it's stillness. And unlike the often misinterpreted Psalm 46, verse 10, which says, be still and know that I am God, that, that doesn't mean be still and know that I am God. In the context of Psalm 46, it means be still and know that I am God. Because what's he saying in Psalm 46? He's saying to all the warring nations of earth, I will stop you. But that's not the sense in Psalm 62. In Psalm 62, it is be still and know that I'm God. It's being restful. It's being relaxed. It's being silent, even in the midst of waiting. Now, this silence doesn't imply prayerlessness. doesn't imply that we're literally doing nothing. It doesn't imply not sharing your trial with trusted brothers and sisters. This is an attitude of the heart. This is a, a restful patience from a safe vantage point, from a safe place. 
And the reason David is, comp- is waiting confidently on the Lord is very simple. At the end of verse 1, he says, From him comes my salvation. This is a proclamation that God alone is the source of his rescue, of his salvation. And this is repeated so often in the Psalms, you can almost just poke your finger in Psalms and find this theme anywhere. And now David uses metaphors for God that are so familiar to us. In fact, I hope they're familiar enough to you that they're almost on the tip of your tongue. Two very memorable pictures of God and why David can wait from a safe place. In verse 2, He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be greatly shaken. And I want you to notice the possessiveness here. Not just that God is objectively like a rock, but he's my rock. He, he is my rock on my behalf. And we can't overstate the importance of the idea of the rock in Psalms. It's used over 20 times to speak of God. He is our rock of refuge. He's the rock who makes my steps secure. He's the rock upon which my feet are set. He's called the rock who is higher than I. He's called the rock who is my redeemer. He's called the upright and righteous rock. And listen, there's no great exegetical mystery to the idea of rock. It's a large, hard, immovable object. That's it. There's no deeper hidden meaning here. And so he is my rock. But the second memorable picture, he is my fortress. Not just a fortress, my fortress. This means a a high tower. It's a place of defense, of safety, of inaccessibility. And so when David reviews these qualities of God, what happens in his own heart? Verse 2, I shall not be greatly shaken. This is a word that means to totter, to stumble, to be close to following falling but he's saying i might have challenges but i will not fall i will not come out of this tower and so he's speaking to us and now david turns to his enemies and his basic message to his enemies is evil is attracted to weakness but will not prevail evil is attracted to weakness but will not prevail and we see this in verse 3 How long will all of you attack a man to batter him like a leaning wall, a tottering fence? David describes himself as a a leaning wall, a tottering fence. He's at the brink of some disaster and his enemies swarm like piranha around him. They're, They're wanting to take him down at his moment of weakness. And he's asking this rhetorical question, how long do you intend to do this? And so he's speaking to them. And now, obviously, this isn't an actual dialogue with his enemies, where his enemies send him a text back saying, we thought we would attack you until next March, but after that, we're going to take a break. That's not what this is here. What he's saying is he's expressing amazement at the persistence of those who are coming against him. That they, that he's lamenting that he's under this constant barrage of attack. It doesn't seem yet to be an overt attack, but it's more of a plot and a plan to take him down. The attack is coming. But the rhetorical nature of this question, how long will all of you attack a man to bather him? It certainly does include sadness. It does include wonder at why this attack continues. But it should be taken in the context of what David just said about being in the fortress of God, in the high tower. In other words, he's saying, yes, I'm at a weak point. Yes, I'm vulnerable. Yes, you may hurt me somewhat, but don't you see where I am? I'm in the fortress of God. I am in a high tower who is God. 
And this is such a beautiful presentation of the concept of being relaxed in God's timing. There's a certain element of frustration, certainly. How long is this going to continue? How long are the arrows going to keep coming over the bulwarks? But placed in the context of verses 1 and 2, basically he's saying, okay, give it all you've got because ultimately you're going to fail. All I have to do is wait. Yes, you may be under siege. The battering rams may be bouncing off the gates. The arrows may be flying over the ramparts. But if you're hidden in the fortress of God, all you have to do is wait it out. That's it. And now David turns from speaking to his enemies to speaking once again to all of us. And his basic message here is, see your enemy for what he is. See your enemy for what he is. And now David explains to us the real nature of his enemies. Verse 4. They only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. There are certainly enemies of the worst sort that we see here. They come from the ranks of would-be supporters and friends. They're hypocritical. Outwardly they're supportive, but inwardly they're, they're cursing David. Um, as a pastor, there's a saying among pastors that says that the guy who moves you into your church is probably the one who will move you out because there's a, there's a hypocritical nature to some church members, certainly not all of them. But David is experiencing here his closest confidants, the one who outwardly say, I love your, your kingship, I, I support you, I'm behind you. But inwardly, they're plotting. Inwardly, they're filled with hatred. And by their actions, they're showing their true colors. But I love, I love David's assessment. I love how objective he's being because he's addressing us instead of them. It's like he's not even giving them the time of day. It's like they're standing right here and he says, uh, you see these bozos right here and I'm not even going to talk to them. They're nothing but hypocrites and liars. They're, they're frauds. If I could put it in terms that maybe a younger generation would understand they might say, well, hello, we're right here. And David's saying, talk to the hand. Just don't want don't to talk to you. These guys right here, I'm going to just talk to you about them. I'm going to pretend they're not even in the room. Your so-called enemy, every one of you has, has enemies. Your enemy might be cancer. Your enemy might be a debilitating physical problem, might be a broken relationship. If I asked you, I won't, but if I asked you to raise your hand as to how many of you have experienced broken relationships, probably almost everybody would. Your enemy might be a financial challenge. But ultimately, all those things which are related to evil and pain in your life, they will be defeated. It's really simple. You have two options. Those enemies will be defeated now or in the life to come. And either one's okay. You don't give your enemy more power than it really has. Cancer only has the power to temporarily render your body unable to function or live. No big deal. Physical problems only have the power to make you uncomfortable briefly until eternity. No big deal. Broken relationships only have the power to break your heart temporarily. No big deal. The financial challenges are simply a means to learn to trust God for a while until you learn to say, like Job said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Now, so far, the Lord is on a, in sort of a defensive posture. God may be a fortress of defense, certainly, 
But eventually, he's going to bring out the cannons and start firing back. David has spoken to us, all of us. His basic message is we can wait restfully in a safe place. David has spoken to his enemies. The basic message is evil is attracted to weakness but will not prevail. He's spoken to us again. His basic message is see your enemy for what he is. And now at the center, at the heart, at the core of this psalm, David speaks to himself. He reminds himself of key spiritual truths by repeating what he said to us. And his basic message to himself is calm down. Calm down, my soul. He endeavors to practice what he's preaching, and so he calms himself by contemplating the nature of God. Now, verses 5 and 6 are very interesting because they're almost an exact replica of verses 1 and 2. It's not that he was a songwriter and couldn't think of anything, so said, well, let's repeat back to the bridge and we'll just call it a song. There's a reason for this. Verses 5 and 6. For God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. Instead of my salvation, in verse 1, now David says, my hope is from God. It's the same thing. Instead of I shall not be greatly shaken, now there's a bigger sense of determination. I shall not be shaken, period. There is no being shaken, And listen to this beautiful picture of trusting God's strength in verse 7. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. On God rests my salvation. It's all about Him. He's responsible. He's in charge. He's bearing the weight. He's bearing the load. This is a picture of a strong man bearing a burden that you can't carry. You ever gone to the airport and check in and your bag weighs 50.0001 pounds and you have to pay that extra money? Well, picture a bag that weighs 100 pounds or 500 pounds and God is the one who takes it and picks it up and carries it where you can't carry. But not only will David rest on God's salvation, but now God also takes care of David's glory. Now, this is very interesting. Obviously, we don't want to take this as David wanting to receive glory for himself that's due only to God, but it is tying any glory that he receives to God's glory. The great Charles Spurgeon wrote, Wherein we should glory but in him who saves us. Our honor may well be left with him who secures our souls to find all in God and to glory in that it is so is one of the sure marks of an enlightened soul. In other words, your honor and your glory and God's honor and God's glory are bound together. Can I put it in terms that make sense? You emerging victorious in your heart through a trial, through a time of waiting, through a time of pain, through a time of anguish, gives glory to God. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but have you ever gotten to the end of a trial and realized that you walked through it like a scared five-year-old girl (laughs) instead of trusting the Lord and being strong? By the way, you know what the Lord often does when you do that? He lets you do it again so that you can learn and grow. My goal in a trial is to go through it so well that he says, we're done with that one. We'll move on to a new one. But there's a key difference between verse 5 and verse 1. They're almost identical But remember that in verse 1, the English translation supplies 
the implied verb, my soul waits in silence. That's not in the Hebrew. That's just an implication. But in verse 5, when David is speaking to himself, there's an overt verb. There's an imperative. That's a command to himself. Wait. And the imperative says, I command you, wait in silence, in restfulness for God alone. And look, already how many times this theme is repeated. Verse 1, for God alone my soul waits in silence. Verse 2, he alone is my rock. Verse 5, for God alone all my soul wait in silence. Verse 6, he only is my rock. Verse 7 on, God rests my salvation. You see the theme here is God alone, God alone, God alone, God alone, God alone. And now, David, if we can still picture him on a stage speaking to various audiences, he goes, as it were, to the balcony of his palace to speak to his people, to speak to his beloved Israel, to speak to those who are counting on a continued, consistent kingship. Now, remember that in the ancient world, and it's not entirely untrue today either, But in the ancient world, the violent and sudden transfer of power meant that thousands of people died. And so if David is taken out, people are going to die. All of his supporters will be executed. And so it's in the people's best interest for God's chosen King David to continue a consistent long reign. And so David addresses his people, and his basic message is, trust God and pray like never before. Trust God and pray like never before. And we see this in verse 8. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. First, David gives this general principle. Trust in Him at all times. Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes that feels overly general to me. Is that a feeling of relief? Is it something that I'm supposed to do? Uh, If I'm sweating bullets and blood about something, does that mean I'm not trusting the Lord? Uh, When I'm about to find out whether news is good news or bad news, am I supposed to be so happy that I'm watching Mary Poppins and eating popcorn? Is that what it means to trust in the Lord, to be emotionally happy? Well, he answers the question because the, the, the question is not how do I feel, but the question is what do I do? And so second, he gives the most practical thing you can do to trust him. He gives hands-on instruction to his people. He's talking to his people and he says, pour out your heart to him. Pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Pouring out your heart. We don't want to miss this metaphor. This is a picture of taking your heart, the bucket of your heart, so to speak, and pouring and pouring and pouring until it's empty, until it's done, You you express everything to the Lord in prayer. Every wish, every hope, every fear, every desire, every emotion, every radical prospect, every confession, every weakness. If you have prayed such that then you have to apologize for the way you prayed, you're probably praying right, actually, because you've poured everything out to the Lord. Lord, I'm scared. I'm angry. I'm upset. I know I shouldn't be those things, but just so you know, Lord, I'm scared. I'm angry. I'm upset. And pouring out your heart. Listen, how do you do this? You'll know when you've done it. Pouring out your heart before the Lord is not a prayer of, I'm leaving for work in five minutes, I think I'll pour out my heart to the Lord. Pouring out your heart to the Lord means you don't look at the clock, you don't look at the time, and you keep going until you're done. And how will you know when you're done? Trust me, you'll know. 
And then you know what you do? Do it again the next day and the next day. This is what David says. Pour out your heart until you're finished. But it takes work. It takes effort. And I wonder if perhaps the Lord allows times of waiting in our lives to teach us how to pour out our hearts until you have that that sense of spiritual relief that all is well. So David shepherds his people with a message, these people who need him to be successful. Trust God and pray like never before. And now David speaks to us once again, and his basic message is only God has actual power. He's talking to all of us. Only God has actual power. Verse 9, those of low estate are but a breath. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than breath. And so here David is on stage, so to speak. To one side are his enemies. To the other side are his people, Israel. His enemies look strong. They look invincible. They look fierce. And you know what he's saying here? He says, look closely. They're just props. They're just cardboard cutouts. They're held up with string and wire and they have fancy stage lighting to make them seem realistic, but they're nothing. They have no actual power. David says here that all humanity is deceptive in terms of what actual power it has. He, he speaks first of the lowly, those of low estate. He says that they're just a breath. This is the same Hebrew word used in Ecclesiastes 1 when Solomon says that vanity of vanities, all is vanity. You know what the word means in Hebrew? It means this. That's it. That's all they are. Oh, well, what about those of high estate? What about those who are wealthy and powerful? He says they're a delusion. Literally in Hebrew, they are a lie. Their power is trickery. It's smoke and mirrors. It's deception. It's a mirage. And David metaphorically weighs them, and and we have to catch this here. He gives one of the greatest insults of all time. He weighs them. This is important because in the Old Testament in particular, the concept of glory, of importance, of, of grandness, of majesty is expressed in terms of weight, The main word used for glory, the glory of God, the kavod of God in the Old Testament is that he is heavy. He's weighty. And you know what he says of these enemies? He says they're... He says one plus one equals zero. They're lighter than air. They're like a helium balloon and God goes boop and that's it. And so David, speaking to us, He uses this knowledge to remind us that that we can't gain power either. You can't earn power. You can't get power. You can't steal power. He says in verse 10, put no trust in extortion. Set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, set not your heart on them. He's saying don't make the mistake of placing your trust in what you can gain. It's short-lived. It's quickly here and it disappears just as fast. It's of no value. There's no object of our faith except God and God alone that can save. There's nothing else we can trust. And he's still speaking to us, and and David reveals, he gives a little insight into his own life, that on two occasions, and we're not told what these occasions are, but on two occasions, God had given a divine oracle, a divine word from heaven. And this shouldn't surprise us. He says in verse 11, once God has spoken, twice I have heard this, that power belongs to God. 
David was not only a king that functioned as the king, but he functioned also very much as the prophet of God, as his numerous prophetic psalms, which speak of the coming of Christ, indicate. But on these two occasions that he mentions, God's message is clear. Power belongs to God. That was God's message to him. This is a a hugely important theological point. The omnipotence of God, the all-powerful nature of God, the fact that he possesses power. And I don't think we take this concept far enough. Let me explain what I mean. David is making here a major observation based on the revelation he received straight from God himself. And that is that the all-powerful, the omnipotent nature of God doesn't just mean that he can do anything because he possesses enough power to do anything. It means he can do anything because he possesses not just enough power to do anything, but he possesses all the power to do anything. No one possesses actual power. It's all his. Hebrews 1 says that God upholds the universe by the word of his power. Psalm 145, 147, rather, verse 5, great is our Lord and abundant in power. Romans 1.20 says that the power of God is eternal. It means he's his own power source, so to speak. Ephesians 1.19 calls the graciousness that God has towards sinners the immeasurable greatness of his power. 2 Corinthians 4.7 speaks of the surpassing power which belongs to God. In Revelation 19.1, the multitudes of heaven cry out, Hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. This is not a contest where God just happens to emerge as the stronger person. He's the only one with any actual power. It's all his. And now in a fitting end of the psalm, David no longer addresses us. He doesn't address his enemies. He doesn't address his people. He now turns his face heavenward to address God. His basic message is, Almighty God will reward faithfulness to him. Almighty God will reward faithfulness to him. He continues telling what God told him in these divine oracles, but now he speaks directly back to God. In verse 12, And that to you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. God is the possessor of steadfast love, the the hesed, covenant-keeping love of the Old Testament, the everlasting love, and that if you're part of his covenant, if you've repented and trusted Christ as Savior and Lord, if you're part of his covenant people, then God will reward your faithfulness. That those who trust the Lord should endeavor to live faithfully and not sinfully. And why? Well, David gives the reason here. That the Lord will repay you. He will reward you for your trust in him. Even when those things which hurt you, which goad you, which pain you, which act as your enemies, even when they make you wait on God's deliverance and when they seem to be all around you. You know what this means? This means that every trial, every pain, every difficulty is an investment made in heaven, which will be repaid to you in eternity. And so if we have a proper investment strategy, so to speak, every time you face a trial, you should say, great, this is fabulous. I just put more money away, so to speak, in the bank of God, if we want to put it that way. So this is important to remember. The enemies of your life, they're just stage props. They're just cardboard cutouts, fancy lighting, and maybe some moving parts with strings, But that's it. 
You can't in and of yourself have power over these things. In the time of waiting on the Lord, your own abilities won't get you farther ahead since only God has all the power. So what's your role? What do you do? Verse one tells us, for God alone my soul waits. Verse five tells us, for God alone, O my soul, wait in silence. Now, Psalm 62 was written by David in the course of his life as he was continuing to learn to trust in the Lord. We saw several prevailing themes. Among them, the fact that God alone possesses all actual power. When somebody tells me, well, here's how you should trust the Lord, you know what I want to see? I want to see the end of that person's life. I want to see, did you practice what you preach? This is why I like reading authors who are dead. Because we can see the course of their life. They didn't end their life in a scandal. I know that they practiced what they preached because they can't do anything otherwise now. What did David's faith look like at the end of his life? It was rich, it was strong, and it was vital. And how do we know this? Well, we have insight into David's life at the end because we have one of his last prayers. And this prayer represents what we all should aspire to in terms of our view of God, our, our trust in his power and his provision. This is the prayer of a man who has essentially lived his life. He's seen a, a lifetime of evidence of the faithfulness of God to those who are part of his covenant community. It's a solemn occasion as recorded in 1 Chronicles 28. You don't have to turn there. I'll just read it to you. 1 Chronicles 28 begins, David assembled at Jerusalem all the officials of Israel, the officials of the tribes, the officers of the divisions that served the king, the commanders of thousands, the commanders of hundreds, the stewards of all the property and the livestock of the king and his sons, together with the palace officials, the mighty men, and all the seasoned warriors. All the important people are there. And this occasion was to announce that his son Solomon would build the first ever permanent structure dedicated solely to the worship of God, the temple of Jerusalem. He publicly charged Solomon to know the God of your father and serve him with a whole heart and a willing mind. For the Lord searches all hearts and understands every plan and thought. If you seek him, he will be found by you. But if you forsake him, he will cast you off forever. David publicly gives Solomon the plans for the temple. He announced that he has been fundraising for this temple and, and that he gave a, a, an enormous sum of money of his own. And right then, David turned to the assembled leaders and said, who will offer willingly consecrated sacrifices to the Lord? Who's going to give? Who's going to help? And the leaders of Israel gave generously to the temple and so at this point, David prays this prayer of blessing. It's a prayer saturated in the trust and the confidence that David has in the power of God because he's waited and waited and waited for this moment and it's arrived. God has delivered David from his enemies. God has answered the prayer of Psalm 62. He has seen the ending that God had ordained he has seen all of his detractors and his foes now just be bad memories. They're no longer the cardboard cutouts. They're in the trash bin. They're in the dumpster. They're behind. They're done. And here is David's prayer, a prayer of one whose faith expressed in Psalm 62 has been proven true. But I want you to listen to the possessive nature of this prayer that David acknowledges what God possesses. He says in 1 Chronicles 29, beginning in verse 10, Therefore David blessed the Lord in the presence of all the assembly. And David said, 
Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And now we thank you, our God, and praise your glorious name oh he learned he learned who had all the power he says it's yours it's yours it's yours and what confidence David has now in the power and the might of God his waiting on the Lord is paid off it's paid off God has delivered him from his enemies and has endowed David with unshakable certainty and conviction and of course There is a caveat, there is a condition to God's faithfulness to David. God is only that sure anchor, that fortress, that rock to those who have submitted themselves to the Lord for the forgiveness of sins. David knew he was a sinner in need of God's pardon. Psalm 32, Psalm 51 tells us this. God is not a rock. God is not a refuge for those who will not place their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, Far from being a rock or refuge, he is a judge, jury, and executioner. The certainty and the confidence David had isn't readily available to anyone. It's readily available to those who would place their faith in Jesus Christ. And in his payment for sin to pay the sin debt owed to God. But for those who have trusted Christ, we can take David's lesson to heart, and that is be relaxed in God's timing Here are all the messages that he gave us. We can wait restfully from the safe place. This is the tower from which we kind of do this to our enemies. Evil is attracted to weakness but will not prevail. See your enemy for what he is. Trust God and pray like never before. Only God has actual power and Almighty God will reward faithfulness to him. Sylvia, my wife, her dad had a word that he redefined theologically. The word is brinksmanship. Now, brinksmanship is normally used in politics to speak of the art or the practice of pushing a dangerous policy or a situation all the way to the breaking point, to the points, even the limits of safety, making something go so far as possible right up to the last minute. Well, Sylvia's dad said that the Lord's work in our life, he redefined this theologically, is brinksmanship. That God takes you to the brink of the cliff, to the edge of disaster, and he waits to the last possible minute to act. And from our standpoint, God's timing is such that we don't have any nails left. We've bitten them all off. But in the Lord's viewpoint, he intervenes and helps exactly when he plans to. Yes, timing is everything, but God's timing is never different than what he planned. Sometimes people will say this, God's timing is best. Could I assert under the strong doctrine of the sovereignty of God that God's timing is the only timing there is? You don't have the choice. Shall I do this in my timing or God's timing? Well, I think I'll sovereignly choose God's timing. No, it was always his timing. Well, what about how the factors of my sin and other people's actions and these all, all these variables, how they enter into that? I don't know. I don't care. God is sovereign. It was always his timing. 
And so when you're in that car that has no brakes and going downhill toward a cliff, and if it stops right at the edge, that was God's timing. If it goes over and you say, I'm coming home, (laughs) that was God's timing. You remember the three men in the furnace in Daniel chapter 3? And Nebuchadnezzar said, I'll throw you in the furnace if you don't bow down to my image. What did they say? God will save us, but even if he doesn't, we'll worship him. I love that. So what do you do? You do this. Just breathe. Because God's timing is the only timing there is. And you can relax. And my hope is that you too will pray the victorious prayer of David after seeing a lifetime of God's perfect timing. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, how gracious and kind you are. How good you are to us. You are a wise, wise Father. From our standpoint, we wait on the Lord, and it's hard. It's difficult. Our emotions get in the way and, and other variables get in the way and we're impatient and, and we're anxious because we have no power and we know that. And while we know that you are our rock and our fortress, sometimes it feels like that you're just a, a pebble that's far away. But if we would get closer and draw near, we would see that you are a mighty rock, a mighty fortress. Lord, I would pray for a man or a woman or a boy or a girl here today who is waiting, waiting on you. I pray, Lord, for great peace. I pray David's prayer of Psalm 4, verse 8, that I will lie down and sleep in peace. For you alone, O Lord, make me to dwell in safety. And Lord, I would pray for a man or a woman or a boy or a girl here who is not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. Might this be the moment that the Holy Spirit blows and regenerates that precious heart. Because for them, God is not a rock. God is a judge. And Lord, I would pray that you would save them. I pray, Lord, that, that they would experience the joy and the, the tremendous triumph of now serving a God who will never, never let them go. I thank you for these precious ones here, Lord. May their waiting upon you be filled with glory and bring you honor as they wait with great faith. For it is in Christ's name we pray, amen.